Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. Let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, August 17th. Just devastating news again this morning. Out of Hawaii, we have learned children are among the 111 victims killed in the wildfires. And the police chief on Maui says that number will go up. Only 38% of the area has been searched so far, and more than 1,000 people are still missing this morning. And the Fulton County District Attorney has circled March 4th as the trial date in Donald Trump's Georgia election subversion case. That's one day before primary voters head to the polls in more than a dozen states. A new overnight, a woman in Texas has been charged for threatening the judge overseeing Jack Smith's federal election subversion case. Also this morning, more young Americans are being diagnosed with cancer. According to a new study, the rising rate is predominantly driven by women and 30 to 39-year-olds. The head coach for U.S. women's soccer is out, resigning after the team made an early exit from this year's World Cup. And a thirsty tourist stopped to fill up her water bottle in Rome's famous Trevi Fountain. You see her balancing on the stones near the middle of the fountain as stunned onlookers watch. Don't think you're supposed to do that. She was eventually escorted away by a guard. See you this morning starts right now. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. I, do that. You wouldn't uh, do that. Uh, depends on the day. I would not really? do that. My children would do that. Yeah, but that's what they're supposed to do. We exist to keep them from <laughs> doing those true. types of things. This is true. That's pretty stunning video. We'll get to that in a moment. But the headline this morning on Donald Trump: Eight days left. That's what he has to surrender on felony charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia this morning. Negotiations, we've learned, are underway for how and when he will surrender. And District Attorney Fonnie Willis is pushing for an aggressive trial date. She is now asking the judge to start this trial on March 4th. Look at that calendar. That is the day before Super Tuesday, when Trump will be competing in more than a dozen presidential primaries. And we're learning more about the dire financial situation of Rudy Giuliani, one of Trump's 18 co-defendants in that Georgia case. A source tells CNN Giuliani went to Mar-a-Lago in recent months to make a desperate face-to-face plea to Trump, asking him to help pay for his ballooning legal bills. Meanwhile, in Trump's federal election case, a Texas woman has been charged with threatening the judge. Investigators say she left a voicemail for the judge saying, quote, if Trump doesn't get elected in 2024, we are coming to kill you, so tread lightly. Let's bring in CNN senior crime and justice reporter, reporter Caitlin Polans. Caitlin, there's like 50 different threads right now mm-hmm. at this moment. What sticks out to you? What are you following, given your focus on all of them? Well, I'm following how many things Donald Trump and his team have to do over the next couple days, let alone the next several months, namely fight these cases as they say they are planning to do. Looking at that calendar next year is intimidating for anyone, particularly for a criminal defendant, in that the calendar is already packed with proposals for trial dates as well as set trial dates in both lawsuits 
and criminal proceedings already. And so as we look at how that's going to shake out, it does look right now that every prosecutor, all four who have charged Donald Trump or all three who have charged Donald Trump in four separate cases, they all want to get their cases done by the end of spring, essentially. Whether that's going to be possible is a really big question and trial dates can definitely move. Things can get dragged out. But what I'm watching for today specifically, Phil and Poppy, is that Donald Trump's team is going to come into court and talk about how much this calendar is difficult for him to navigate because they're going to make a proposal in this crucial federal case related to January 6th today on when they want the trial date to be. Trump has already said publicly that he doesn't want it till after the election, of course. But the Justice Department wants it to be in early January, a pretty aggressive proposal there right now, the earliest potential criminal trial if they get what they want. But that federal criminal case related to January 6th, it is four charges. It is one defendant and it has a judge who wants to move fast. So that's a big deal. And then just really quickly, the other thing is the next couple of days, there's a bunch of hearings just illuminating how much Donald Trump and his team are having to respond to everything, not only his arrest, but some hearings related to all three other criminal cases against him. Yeah, a lot of lawyers, a lot of money as well, as we've been talking about over the course of the last couple of weeks. I do want to ask you, there's kind of a stark reminder of the moment we're in yesterday, the, the threats being thrown in the direction of Judge Tanya Chutkin. Uh, what's the response been right now? Well, the response is that there is a criminal complaint against a woman in Texas now in the federal court uh, that could very well lead to a more robust set of charges. We have seen cases like this come up in the past, not just related to federal judges, uh, but also related to all kinds of political figures, especially uh, opponents of Donald Trump. This woman in Texas, Abigail Jo Shry, she placed a phone call to Judge Tanya Chutkin, the federal case, uh, the jurist who is overseeing the federal case in Washington, D.C. against Trump. She made that call just a couple days after Trump was arraigned in federal court on those criminal charges related to January 6th and, and did tell the judge on the call, you will be targeted personally, politically, your family, all of it. Now, she was approached by officers just a couple days later, federal officers saying to them, according to the court papers, that she did make that call to Judge Chutkin. Now, whether this actually would have resulted in some sort of violence ultimately <clears throat> is not the question. There is a criminal charge out there about communicating a threat to injure people across state lines, threatening to injure officers or officers of the federal government. That is a real charge that happens in the federal system. And in this court, they have had to deal with things like this before. The judge overseeing Michael Flynn's case, another Trump ally in 2021, there was a man from New York that made a call to that judge on his voicemail. It was very threatening. He ended up doing 18 months in prison. Yeah. Oh, just the threats are serious. They're real. There's real consequences, but it just feels like we're in a pretty dicey moment right yeah, now. Yeah, and so many judges from the Supreme Court on down have been threatened and some attacked. Caitlin, thanks for the reporting from Washington. The new this morning, the death toll from Hawaii's devastating wildfires has risen to 111, and officials are starting to release some of the names of those victims. The police chief at a news conference overnight also says that some of the remains they're finding are the remains of children. Search teams have covered at least 38% of the area with an additional 225 people added to the search efforts and another 20 dogs. 
Hawaii's governor, Josh Green, told CNN last night that the estimates, more than 1,000 people, are still missing. Now, scrutiny is being placed on the state's emergency response. Hawaii has one of the largest siren warning systems in the world, but those sirens remain silent as the wildfires raged. The governor has ordered the state's attorney general to launch a review, telling CNN on Tuesday night that some of the sirens had been aging over decades. Some were broken during the wildfire. Maui's emergency management agency's administrator said the sirens had been tested just a week before and did not sound deliberately. Do you regret not sounding the sirens? I, I do not. The sirens, as I had mentioned earlier, is used primarily for tsunamis. Had we sounded the siren that night, we were afraid that people would have gone Malka. And if that was the case, then they would have gone into the fire. Here's what Hawaii Senator Maisie Hirono said. I know that the uh, Attorney General is reviewing the pre, during, and post of, uh, of this disaster. So that is ongoing. I do believe that the Maui uh, person was uh, premature in his uh, assessment of the situation in saying that he does not regret not sounding the alarm. So much death, so much destruction. Some homeowners are only now going back to see what is left. Hawaii News Now reporter Mahalani Richardson reports on the ground in Lahaina, where she walked through a charred neighborhood as one couple sees their home for the first time. We were in the Kilauea neighborhood, which was destroyed by the fire. And just walking around, it it's very hard to take in. Everything is burned. You see the utility lines still hanging. All of these cars have been just completely burned. And I have to tell you, there, it, there's a certain smell of this neighborhood. Um, it, it is smells of ash and chemicals and other things that I don't even know what it is. Uh, look at this. We keep hearing about the burned metal. Well, this is metal that was completely burned. And then you see those fine particles of ash. This is why the, this area, health officials have been saying that it is toxic. It is not good to be here. Uh, look at these cars. This, it's, it's unreal. The car windows just blown out and then the glass was melted. What really struck me about being in this neighborhood is that part of it was not destroyed and now you have kupuna just up that road with those homes that were not destroyed but still covered with dust and soot they are now walking to their homes for 10 minutes to half an hour just to get to their homes so that they can be there 62 year old helen kaai walks to her home in the kilauea moka neighborhood overlooking historic lahaina town it's a short walk with her husband howard but in the hot sun and their fatigued bodies, the journey is difficult and blocked by barricades. We're just doing what we have to do. They're not gonna let us, we'll just go by foot. Their home was spared, but unlivable. Her heart broken. I know you've been visiting your home a few times since this week, but is this the first time you're seeing this? Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to take in. You know, just seeing all this devastation, I don't. I don't know what to think. We grew up here. This is home to a lot of us. She says she couldn't look until today, more than a week after the firestorm. Sitaleki Ika walks to his home. For him, each way takes half an hour. It's an emotional journey. Make me cry. Make me cry. And 
over 20 years I staying in my house. There's an eerie emptiness of a once thriving town. The stench can be overwhelming, but these families are determined to keep coming back. And from her home, Helen Ka'ai can still see the historic smokestack above the ashes. There's hope. Lahaina will get back and it will be stronger. Mahalani Richardson, Hawaii News Now. Joining us now is Cindy McMillan. She's a spokeswoman for the State of Hawaii's Joint Information Center. Thanks so much for taking the time this morning. I want, I want to start following up by what we heard last night uh, related to the sirens or the lack of the use of the sirens and the rationale for it. If you put that together with the fact that many people didn't have their cell phones or didn't have cell phone service and therefore could not receive those alerts, I think there's some question right now is, is there anything that could have been done to warn people that this catastrophe was coming their way? Good morning. Sure. Um, I just wanted to start by saying that that uh, your coverage has been great and we are carefully and, and, and compassionately proceeding. And as part of this response, we are still actively working fire sites and recovery uh, efforts. And the questions that folks have been asking about the alerts and so on are, are definitely top of mind for so many here. And the governor did ask the attorney general, as you reported, to conduct a comprehensive review of the policies and practices that led up to during and following this incident. So we don't have answers to your questions yet. We do expect that the attorney general will get them, but at this point, we can't say. What do you make of, we just played sound uh, there from an official saying he does not regret not sounding the alarm because it would have confused people. And he said they would have run into the fire because normally these sirens would have been sounded for tsunamis. Do you agree? Would they have run yeah, into I, the fire? Sorry, I, I don't know the answer to that. I can tell you that the comprehensive review is going to be looking at that, yep. both in this instance and then what we do going forward, because what we learn in this instance will, it will inform how we move forward and so how we can keep people well, safe in the future. Can I ask when people will know? Because... They're desperate for answers. Sorry, answer. when people will know yeah, what? When, when people will know when you expect that review to be done because they are desperate for answers and assurance that this won't happen again to them with no warning. And I, I understand that. And I, I, despite that, I can't give you a date for that because, as I said, we're still in an active recovery situation and the fires are mm -hmm. still burning. Now, there aren't actually any, uh, there's no threat to homes at this point with those fires, but they are not completely contained yet. We have toxic situations, as Mahalani reported. Um, we have um, identification of our loved ones ongoing. And the comprehensive review is a part of the entire response. But at this point in time, I'm, I just can't give you a, a date on that. Cindy, so in terms of the, the response that's ongoing right now, um, the recovery, the identification, the levels of complexity and difficulty, uh, and the arduous nature of it, do you have any idea when it will be complete and when families, all families, will know, I think there's more than 1,000 people still missing at this point in time, uh, will have answers uh, for where their family members are? Well, as you noted, the canine search teams have doubled in the last few days. We have 90 people now. Teams from 14 states are helping with the search. 38% uh, of the Lahaina burn area has been covered. Um, the police chief said, Maui police chief said today that he can't give an estimate. He can only do it the right way. 
And so until that is done, it's, it's not complete. And uh, we know that people are desperate for news of their loved ones and the unaccounted for. And those efforts are proceeding as quickly and as compassionately as possible. What should people do? Should people go to Maui? You know, there, there, so many residents are saying, don't come, don't, don't just look at what has happened. And yet the businesses are struggling so much. So much of the economy is tourism. What, what is your message for people who think it may help the economy to visit, but also balancing that with the respect and the dignity of those who are suffering so much? You have hit it on the head. It is a balance. Visitors do contribute so much to our economy here, and we appreciate that. At this point in time, we're just asking that visitors don't go to West Maui. There are plenty of other places, even on Maui and certainly in the rest of the state, for visitors to come enjoy a vacation and not have to worry about um, the, the, the people who are grieving in West Maui. The key here is respect for this special place that is home. And Lahaina has such a rich history and culture. Right now, really focused on the families and the loved ones we've lost there. And then we'll, then we'll look to recovery and rebuilding. But right now, it is a balance. It is about respect. Can we ask you just one final question on the, just to hear that number, mm -hmm. more than 1,000 people missing is so striking. Do you have any indication of whether those are people who just cannot, who escape but cannot communicate, the majority, or are the majority presumed to have perished? We do not know at this point in time. We're still working very hard to find, as, as I mentioned, to find, to identify folks. And we, we want family members to work with the American Red Cross, spearheading this effort to make sure that we understand who has not been accounted for yet, where they might have been. And then also on the, also on the positive side, those people who had been unaccounted for, we'd like to hear from them when they do make contact with their families. Yeah. All right, Cindy McMillan, spokeswoman for the State of Hawaii's Joint Information Center. Uh, if you find things that you need or that people need to know, please come back to us anytime. We appreciate your time. Thank you. The first Republican presidential debate is really around the corner, just days away. And sources tell CNN Donald Trump is probably not going to be there. What's he going to do instead? And CNN is on the front lines of Ukraine's high-stakes counteroffensive. We're going to give you a first-hand look at Ukrainian Marines fighting to take back territory from the Russians. Yet another town taken as the counteroffensive does move forwards. We were just seeing the neighboring village taken last week, but they keep moving. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The first Republican presidential debate, we're just talking about what time it starts, by the way, is in less than a week. And sources are telling CNN that the former president and Republican frontrunner Donald Trump is probably not going to go. Instead, he is proposing counter-programming to the debate. One idea he's floating, a sit-down with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson, another calling into the different cable news shows. Joining us at the table, CNN congressional correspondent Jessica Dean, politics reporter for Semaphore, Shelby Talcott, and CNN political analyst and White House correspondent 
for PBS News Hour, Laura Barone Lopez. Morning, ladies. I was complimenting your coordinating suits. They all look you too, Phil. They all look amazing. Thank you for that. You're welcome. You didn't when you were I, I know, but I did on TV, and isn't that what matters? That? No. Okay, yeah. No, I don't know. You're reporting. He's not going? I, every time I've asked Trump's aides, the response has been, what's the upside in going? Um, and so that's kind of the main focal point of how they're thinking things. And as CNN reported, the other thing is, well, why would we go to the presidential debate when we could potentially do something that would result in more eyeballs and get more attention? And you've seen him do this often, right, is kind of derail the other Republican candidates. We saw that in Iowa just last week. Uh, and so it, it does seem unlikely that he's going and likely that if he doesn't go, he is going to try to do something else to steal the spotlight. Did you notice how she was very what? careful in hedging there a little bit? This is what people are saying now isn't at the that, moment. Isn't we that don't what know. good reporters yes. do, especially no, no, no. when it comes That's to That's what I'm Donald saying. Trump. That is a savvy <laughs> veteran <laughs> reporter well, right the there. Okay, so remember, all of these Republican candidates are just so excited about this debate. They're going to be on the stage because it is potentially their moment to have their breakthrough moment, to reclaim some of the spotlight nationally uh, from Donald Trump. What I'm curious about is next week, Donald Trump is going to have to surrender himself down in Fulton County. And when does that happen? Because he's got this press conference that he wants to do on Monday. And then we have the debate on Wednesday. The deadline is Friday. What better way to steal the spotlight than if he surrenders on Wednesday? During the debate. Right. I don't know. But like, as Shelby was just saying, he knows he wants some counter-programming here. And he is a master of taking that spotlight back. He's done it time and time again already through this cycle. I would expect something like that. And they're open 24-7, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Right. I mean, the the judge and the, the DA has to agree to that. I mean, they have oh, to to agree. the timing? To the timing. They have to say, you know, that's why they're negotiating that right now. And they, they have to say that, yes, we would also come in at this time. Time. Right. Um, and I'm here. But I right. But I thought that it was funny that also in uh, CNN's reporting that it says that this could change in the eleventh hour. He could sure. decide very last minute. Never mind. I'm going to show up, which we know that he he often does that. Uh, but I do think that whether or not he goes, I'm skeptical that it'll really impact any of his standing with and, voters. And yeah, and I and I think it's interesting when you say like last minute. Because my big question is, I think that the RNC has given him, like, he has to decide 48 hours before. But if he shows up last minute, are they going to say no? Is Fox going to say no? No. Well, and like, there, I do <laughs> no. think there are security concerns around that, obviously, because you are dealing with Secret Service. So there are some logistical challenges. But, yeah. but to you all's point, it's, it's, it's Donald Trump. And um, he literally controls everything I'm in the party and in this moment and in this race without any question. The polls show it. What you're saying about the RNC definitely underscores it. Fox clearly wants him to show up as well. The interesting thing to me, by the way, he did this in 2016. Does anybody, he skipped the Iowa debate yeah. and held a counter-programming mm -hmm. event as well. I think he still owes people money for that, if I recall correctly. <laughs> but other candidates want him in the debate, too. You've seen Chris Christie tweeting uh, back at Trump after, I don't want to get into the semantic back and forth, but basically calling him a coward, uh, saying he needed to come to the debate. You now have the DeSantis campaign and their super PAC running ads uh, saying that he's, been, he's too scared to debate. Why do the candidates want Trump in the, the debate? Well, this is their first real opportunity to go at him face to face and to kind of show voters why they would be a better choice. They haven't had, they haven't had the opportunity to go face to face against Trump. And so all of these candidates, even though it's unlikely that Trump's gonna go, are prepping as if he's going to show up because it's the first real opportunity 
to say, hey, we've been telling you for months now that we're the better option, that we're more presidential, that we can take things further than Trump did or whatever the specific reason that the individual candidate is, is pitching, this is their opportunity to do that. And so Trump not going does take the wind out of, out of the debate. And, and even, if, even if he's not there, they're going to be talking about him. I mean, especially Chris Christie and others that are more willing to take him on. Uh, the question, though, for Republican voters in this primary is, are they prepared to have a nominee, potentially a nominee if Trump is the nominee, that is a convicted felon on Election Day uh, if, all, if these cases wrap up by Election Day? And it seems that they aren't really concerned about that potential, potential problem right now or the impact on the general election. And other than Christie and Asa Hutchinson and Will Hurd, mm -hmm. you aren't seeing a collective argument made no. by no. the candidates that that, that could be a, an electability problem. Right. Just, I yeah. think I just think it's interesting that the, the, this polling from Quinnipiac shows 57 percent of Republican voters mm -hmm. think it's very important. Mm -hmm. And if you add somewhat important to that, you're almost at 90 percent of them that any Republican candidate who qualifies shows up on the debate stage. You point out Iowa, for example, that minds are not totally made up. Oh, no, So it could all. really matter in a state like that if he doesn't show up. It's certainly, things are very fluid, and it's, it's like we can hold two things at once, right? Two things can be true at once. Donald Trump has been the front runner uh, across four, now four indictments, and that has been very consistent in the national polling and in these early states. However... It is August, and people in Iowa, I was just there a couple weeks ago, they're still looking around. They may like Donald Trump, but they are very much still looking around. So this is fluid, and Poppy, to your point, things like this do matter, and and can. And sometimes it's just incremental moving of the needle. In, in Ron DeSantis's case, that's what they're hoping to do. He keeps going back and back and back, and they, they want it to just kind of move over time. Nothing else has shifted the race up to this point. Through these campaigns, you have to have something here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in what the words of Phil Mattingly, he controls everything. Yeah, that's <laughs> you're not wrong. daunting, I you're think, if you're wrong. a Republican candidate. Yeah, right? Uh, Jess, Laura, I uh, appreciate it, Shelby. Thanks very much. Well, federal appeals court has wiped away a lower court's ruling that would have taken the medication abortion drug off the market. Where that case is headed, that's next. Also, a viral video shows a tourist climbing into Rome's iconic Trevi Fountain to fill up her water bottle. You can see her standing on the rocks. That was not me to reach the center of the 18th century landmark. After filling up her bottle, she walks away, but she's stopped by a guard. The guard talks to the tourist before escorting her away. It's not clear if she was arrested or fined. Tourists can be fined up to 500 euros for entering the fountain. Welcome back. A major abortion pill case is now going to the Supreme Court. The Justice Department officials there say they will ask the justices to review an appeals court ruling that was handed down yesterday. It limits access to mifepristone. That, of course, is used in combination with another drug, and it's the most common way that women in the United States terminate their pregnancies. Our senior Supreme Court analyst, Joan Biskupic, joins us in Washington with more. Good morning, Joan. What did the Fifth Good Circuit morning. do, and when does this get heard uh, up high? Sure, Poppy. Good to see you and Phil. Uh, this is the most important abortion-related litigation to hit the federal courts since the Supreme Court itself overturned Roe v. Wade uh, a year ago. And it involves the authority 
of the Food and Drug Administration to approve any kind of drug. In this case, it was the abortion medication, but it's, you know, its ability to look at um, drugs and find them safe and effective, and to also, in what happened here, loosen some requirements for access to the drug. So uh, last April, a Texas judge, first hearing this case brought by uh, physicians and medical groups that oppose abortion, had ruled that the core FDA approval for mifepristone that dates all the way to 2000 was flawed. So it rejected that and uh, regulations that went into effect beginning in 2016 that increased women's ability to get the drug. For example, 10 weeks into pregnancy rather than just seven weeks, and, and other uh, elements that, as I say, made it easier for women to have access to the drug. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals yesterday, reviewing that Texas judge's decision, said that it was wrong to uh, reverse the 2,000-year uh, approval, but importantly here, uh, Poppy and Phil, said that the 2016 protocols that uh, gave women more access to the drug, that the uh, FDA did not sufficiently assess mm. how they could, uh, those uh, new protocols could um, uh, adversely affect women who were taking the drug. Uh, so it really questions uh, the FDA's approval process, and that's why the Department of Justice said it needs to appeal to preserve the uh, agency's scientific uh, expertise, but also to help Americans nationwide who would want access to the drug. You know, Joan, I remember uh, when the first ruling came out, I think you and I were together, it was like a Friday night, <laughs> it was very late, that's and right. we were going back and that's forth right. for a couple of hours. And, you know, the idea, that, the point that you made at the very beginning, I think is the most critical one. In terms of what this means, this is by far the most critical abortion-related case the Supreme Court will be dealing with since the Roe v. Wade ruling. Do we have any sense right now of how this is going to land when it gets up to the nine justices? That's a good question. And, you know, it's going to land, importantly for, for Americans out there, in terms of what the, if this... If this ruling is upheld, just think of what would happen. It will make it harder for women to access this drug, Go as I said, from uh, just um, uh, seven weeks of pregnancy. They wouldn't be able to get it all the way into 10 weeks. Uh, a non-physician uh, wouldn't be able to prescribe it, as happens now. You wouldn't have any telehealth uh, access or access by mail. But to get to your core question of, what would happen at the Supreme Court? It was an extremely conservative lower court judge who first started all this with a, the ruling that said that even the 2,000-year approval was wrong. And, and it was a very conservative panel of the Fifth Circuit. But <laughs> we're not dealing with a, a liberal Supreme Court anymore. We're, we haven't been dealing with that for decades, but we certainly have the most conservative Supreme Court in decades about to hear this case. I do think, though, Phil and Poppy, that there's a chance it might not go as extreme as right. their uh, abortion ruling had gone last year, but just because of what's at stake here. You know, it's FDA approval, not just for mifepristone, but for cancer drugs, diabetes, everything. Uh, epilepsy. Exactly. So there's, it's a more complicated uh, set of uh, elements here, and we'll see. And uh, to fill to your question, when? I would think that it could be heard in the term that's coming up that begins this fall with an ultimate ruling probably by uh, next summer, 2024. Joan, thank you so much. And thanks for reminding us this isn't just about this drug. It's about deciding on a broader issue that would affect how the FDA right. approves so many different drugs. Appreciate it. That's right. Thank you.
Well, community leaders and activists taking to the streets of South Florida protesting new education standards that they say inaccurately teaches black history. It was painful to see our history being buried like that on purpose. Tennessee State Representative Justin Pearson, one of the Tennessee Three traveling to Miami to march with protesters against Florida's new black history standards. Some of the protesters carrying signs read, quote, teach the truth and slavery had no benefits. It comes after the state issued those new teaching standards that required lessons, including that slaves learned skills that benefited them personally. CNN's Carlos Suarez reports. These are some of the cruel reminders of Florida's black history. The destruction of the once thriving black town of Rosewood at the hands of a white mob. Lynchings in Newberry and a massed unmarked grave in Okoe, where in 1920, two black men tried to vote. The offense considered so great that it led to the deaths of as many as 50 people. Most of them were black, two were white men. They killed two of their own. A painful racial past that some historians and educators believe Florida is trying to rewrite. Let the record reflect. These are the most robust standards in African-American history. Last month, the state's Board of Education approved new standards for teaching black history in order to comply with, quote, anti-woke policies led by Governor Ron DeSantis that limit how race is discussed in schools and businesses. The board now requires that events like the Okoe massacre to be taught as, quote, acts of violence perpetrated against and by African-Americans, a distinction historically. Dr. Marvin Dunn says is wrong. There was no black on white racial violence in Okoye. The state of Florida requires teachers to teach that lie. Dr. Dunn recently took three dozen teachers and staff from Miami-Dade Public Schools on what he calls his Teach the Truth tour with stops throughout Central Florida. It was painful to see our history being buried like that on purpose. For high school teacher Mark Riley, the trip was overwhelming. You know, I've heard stories, but it's nothing like coming out here yourself and experiencing and seeing it for yourself. From high school to Sunday school, churches are also carrying the tradition of preserving black history. Dr. Tony Drayton is the pastor of the St. James Church of Riviera Beach, where he says black history has long been a part of his sermons and lessons for his young members. Five, ten minute uh, short stories that's on his or her level. Dr. Drayton is also a part of the nonprofit Faith in Florida, a group that's created a black history toolkit. It's a resource featuring articles, books, and documentaries to help anyone learn more about the history of African-Americans. The toolkit can be a, a game changer in teaching our history. It's that truth that parents, teachers, lawmakers, and activists demanded at a recent town hall near Miami, where the frustration was palpable when the discussion turned to another part of the new education standard that states, quote, slaves developed skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Slavery was one of the most, the most horrific, brutal, divisive, destructive, evil, experiences that this world has ever known. 
Manny Diaz, Florida's commissioner of education, accepted an invitation to attend but did not show up, saying he was welcoming students back to school. Manny Diaz is a coward. Vice President Kamala Harris did come to Florida to speak out against the new standards, and she turned down an invitation from Governor DeSantis to have a debate about the new curriculum. There were no redeeming qualities of slavery. And so we reached out to the uh, we reached out to the Department of Education for comment on some of the criticism surrounding the new standards, as well as the Education Commissioner's decision not to attend the town hall. However, we did not hear back. As for the teachers that we spent the weekend with in Central Florida, all of them said they do not plan to teach what they believe to be lies. Mm-hmm. Phil and Poppy. All right, Carlos Suarez for us in Miami. Thank you. Yeah, so glad uh, Carlos did that piece, really important. Um, Ahead, a new very troubling study on the rise of cancer diagnoses among young people. The demographic that is driving the increase will tell you ahead. And first on CNN, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has spoken on the phone to Paul Whelan, the American who is imprisoned in Russia. What he told him, that's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, now to Ukraine this morning. The first container ship to depart Ukraine since the Black Sea grain deal collapsed has reached Romanian waters. That's according to the latest tracking data. And it comes as Russia launched multiple drone attacks on Ukraine's ports, putting global food security at risk. Meantime, a Ukrainian Air Force official says U.S. says that U.S. made F-16 fighter jets are not expected to arrive this year as Moscow's at- Moscow attacks the slow counteroffensive. Nick Payton Walsh joins us live in Dnipro, Ukraine, with more. Nick, good morning to you. What can you tell us? Yeah, certainly Ukraine desperately in need of some kind of air support boost for their southern counteroffensive. That said, though, they are seeing some success. And we were with them as they got and announced the capture of the first village in about two or three weeks in the southeastern part of their counteroffensive, an advance that seems partially aided by cluster munitions, unclear who supplied them. But remember, the US has recently given them to the Ukrainians and they appear to be in use. Here's what we saw. There may be ruin around them, but their direction is forwards. We're with the 35th Ukrainian Marines, the first reporters to get to the outskirts of Urazhenia. Yet another village announced liberated Wednesday. The victories may be small, but a constant. So, just down here, Urazhenia, yet another town taken as the counter-offensive does move forwards. We were just seeing the neighbouring village taken last week, but they keep moving. That much incoming, we're getting out of here as quick as we can. While they control Orozhania, the Russians do everything they can to make it a nightmare for the Ukrainians to be there. The unit showed us the intense fight captured by drone. This, their tank advancing, dropping a string of anti-mine explosives behind it, they said, which then, once it turned, detonated. The unit released a video of them in the town Wednesday, of how they turned their firepower on what was once a Russian stronghold that shelled them. 
The company commander recalls many more Russians hidden there than he expected. Very many died, he says, especially when they started to run. And when they held houses, lots of them died there. But they were caught as they fled. The smoke around Russians, likely made by cluster munitions, Ukraine has said it is already using some rounds controversially supplied by the United States. We could not confirm if these fired here were the new American cluster bombs. But the losses suffered were clear. And they say their use is less of an ethical dilemma when you're in this brutal fight. I don't understand it, he says. That side is using whatever they want. Our people are dying from all this and it's okay. When the other side die, it's not. I don't understand. His footage shows how young some in the assault were. He has no time for Western analysts who say this should be moving faster. I would say they can always come to me as a guest and fight with me, he says. If someone believes that you can fly over the minefield on a broom like in Harry Potter, it doesn't happen in a real fight. If you don't understand that, you can sit in your armchair and eat your popcorn. Yeah, you smell it. Out here, the last month of advances feel both empty and gruelling, littered now with Russian dead. They haven't moved perhaps as far as it has felt. These just empty farm fields in which many have died to take each kilometer. The Russians mined so hard here, they used this machine to do it. So much damage done, it's hard to imagine what plans Moscow had for here at all, had they kept it. Important to give you some context about why Orozhenia matters. We were in Staromayorskir, just north of it, a couple of weeks ago, and the problem they were facing was the Russians had dug into Orozhenia and were shelling them across the river. But since then, they've moved forwards, in fact, down the other side of the river entirely and taken that important village. This all sounds incremental, but it's brutal and hard work for the Ukrainians, and they feel progress. Even though, as you saw there, the fields they're advancing through, they're empty, sparsely populated. This is what their slow sense of victory looks like. Poppy? Nick Payton Walsh, remarkable reporting, as always, live from Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you. So next for us, the coach of the U.S. women's national soccer team stepping down after a disappointing World Cup run. And will he or won't he or what will he do? The new <laughs> CNN reporting of what Trump could do if he skips out on next week's first primary debate. Well, we're learning this morning the coach of the U.S. women's soccer team has reportedly stepped down less than two weeks after being knocked out of the World Cup. Andy Scholes joins us now. He was new, right? Was this expected? Well, after the finish, you know, this was not much of a surprise, guys. The U.S. women did have their worst showing ever at the World Cup. And according to multiple reports, Blatko Andonovsky has resigned. Andonovsky, he only lost five games in regulation over almost four years at the helm, but he didn't deliver on those high expectations. The two-time defending World Cup champion scored only four goals in their four World Cup matches, and this was after finishing with a disappointing bronze medal at the Tokyo Olympics. But a new coach its going to need to be named rather quickly with the Paris Olympics just a year away from now. Elsewhere, we did see some history at the Little League World Series yesterday. Cuba 
making their first ever appearance in Williamsport, but uh, they unfortunately were no hit by Japan, losing that game one to nothing. Panama, meanwhile, they got an epic performance from Omar Vargas against the Czech Republic. He struck out every single batter he faced. He had 12 strikeouts in four innings, and he hit a grand slam, knocking in all of the team's runs as they won the game. Four to zero. Now, Phil, I know you once upon a time were a 12-year-old baseball phenom, but did you ever strike out 12 and hit a grand slam in one game? I just don't understand how a 12-year-old's throwing a slider like that. Um, that's that insane. Nasty. But also, yeah. the kids, take it opposite field. Come on, Andy. You know the deal. Let's talk to these little... You want to go to Williamsport? We can go. We can teach. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah, you know, if it's an outside pitch, you know what to do, Phil. <laughs> All right, Andy. Thanks, man, as Thank always. You. All right. See you in this morning. Continues right now. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's get started with five things to know for this Thursday, August 17th, just into CNN, now circulating in far-right internet pictures, social media profiles, and home addresses that seem to belong to members of the Georgia grand jury that voted to indict Donald Trump. This comes after a Texas woman who was arrested for threatening uh, the judge in the federal election subversion case. Also, the Hawaii wildfires now have claimed the lives of 111 people. That includes children. We know there are still more than 1,000 people missing and only 38% of the disaster zone has been searched. Also this morning, news that more young people are being diagnosed with cancer. According to a new study, the rising rate is predominantly driven by women in their 30s. And Michael Burry, he of the big short fame, correctly predicted the collapse of the housing market in 2008. Now he has bet more than $1.6 billion on Wall Street crash. Burry's using more than 90% of his portfolio to make that bet on a market downturn. And yes, we're still talking about Barbie and its third week in the box office. It is still shattering records. Barbie is now Warner Brothers' highest grossing domestic release ever, even though some countries are banning the movie. We'll tell you all about it. CNN This Morning starts right now. Have you seen it yet, Barbie? I've been a little busy. I know, uh, the but last still, go this weekend. It's so okay. good. Okay, I, I'm not anti, but people got mad when you asked me and I said oh, no I'm a couple sorry. months ago because they thought I was anti Barbie. No. I'm not. I'm You're just, gonna love it. I've yes. had some stuff going on. Settled in New York now. Yeah, it's so great, and it just blew me away. And, and apparently, a lot of people. And now I have to go to Barbie. Yes, you have to go to Barbie. Um, we're gonna get to that in a moment, but now to this very serious and disturbing news. New details this morning. A Texas woman has been charged with threatening to kill the federal judge who is overseeing former President Donald Trump's federal election interference case. According to a criminal complaint, she called the chambers of Judge Tanya Chuckin on August 5th, left a voicemail message threatening to, quote, kill anyone who went after former President Trump. She reportedly said, quote, if Trump doesn't get elected in 2024, we are coming to kill you, so tread lightly. And then an expletive, you are in our sights, we want to kill you. The woman, according to the complaint, also made a direct threat to kill Texas Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, all Democrats in Washington, D.C., and all people in the LGBTQ community. She admitted to Homeland Security special agents that she made the call to Judge Chutkin's chambers, but that she had, quote, no plans to travel to Washington, D.C. or Houston to carry out anything she stated. She's being held in detention pending trial. And also, just in to CNN, photos, social media profiles, even the home addresses purportedly belonging to members of the Fulton County Grand Jury in Georgia are circulating on far-right websites. This comes just days after the grand jury indicted 
former President Donald Trump, and 18 co-defendants. I want to go straight to Donny O'Sullivan with more on this new reporting. Donny, what are you learning right now? Hey, Phil. Yeah, so unlike the federal system, when somebody is indicted in Fulton County, Georgia, uh, the names of the people who sit on that grand jury are included uh, in the indictment. So there's a lot of people saw these names uh, in the indictment the other day and, and thought that it had mistakenly been posted. That isn't actually the case. This is protocol uh, in Fulton County. Uh, But look, what we've seen online uh, disturbingly in the past uh, 48 hours or so uh, is some people essentially describing uh, this list, the list of grand jurors, as a quote-unquote hit list. Um, And we've seen people trying to dox dox people who are are on the grand jury, so posting uh, what purports to be grand jurors' um, social media profiles, uh, their pictures, uh, their home uh, addresses, uh, all, of course, kind of in the context uh, uh, to suggest that there should be a retribution uh, for these citizens uh, doing their job, uh, essentially. what we can say also is, is that it's not clear uh, to us if um, all the social media pages and the purported addresses and even the images are actually all of the grand jurors um, or if they're simply just people who share haven't shared the same name as some of those jurors. Uh, but either way, you know, experts we have spoken to have said, uh, even if they're posting the wrong details of people are being posted online. That also creates risks uh, for those people as well. Um, Look, you know, there's a bit of chatter uh, about this, um, you know, from what we can see on a lot of these kind of far right uh, extremist uh, forms. And look, a lot of times it is just that it is uh, just chatter. Um, But look, this it's also showing up in places where, you know, some of these forms have been um, linked to um, shootings and violent attacks in the past. Some of the platforms uh, even used in the planning uh, up to the January 6th uh, attack on the U.S. Capitol. Um, so there is potential real harms for this, of course. There could be a lot of harassment as, as a result of this, uh, but something that we are monitoring closely. I think, look, so it's on page nine of the indictment. They list all the grand jurors. And when I saw that, I was surprised. Because in a lot of proceedings, people will probably be wondering, well, jurors aren't, names aren't out there in sort of normal court proceedings. There's the, a law in Georgia, Doni, that they have for transparency reasons that says the name of the grand jurors, who, by the way, don't get to choose if they're going to be doing this or not, are out there. And that, that's concerning to some of them for reasons like this. Exactly. And look, I mean... Um, transparency is, is one thing, but obviously in this environment, particularly in, in yeah. you know the world we live in today of kind of really charged political, uh, violent rhetoric online. I mean, this is a very scary situation. I mean, I, I've seen some of these posts, uh, essentially what you have, and in very, very dark corners um, of the internet, again, kind of on forums uh, where, you know, mass shooters, people who have gone on to uh, take part in violent attacks. Uh, there are pictures uh, screenshots of Facebook pages, all purporting to belong uh, to uh, members uh, of this grand jury. So, um, you know, one thing that just kind of one comment that, that stuck out really to, to us as we were going through this was uh, somebody looking at, at that list um, of grand jurors and calling it a hit list. It was quite chilling. Yeah, of course. Wow. This is great new reporting, Donnie. Keep us posted on this. I think it's important. Appreciate your time. 
So this morning, negotiations are underway for Donald Trump's surrender in the state of Georgia. Take a look. This is a live shot of the Fulton County Jail, where the former president has eight days left to turn himself in on those felony charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in the state. District Attorney Fonnie Willis is now asking the judge to start that trial on March 4th. That is a day before Super Tuesday when Trump will be competing in more than a dozen presidential primaries. And remember, for criminal cases, he's got to be in the courtroom. We're also learning more about Rudy Giuliani, one of Trump's lawyers, serious money problems. He's one of Trump's 18 co-defendants in this Georgia indictment, and his legal bills have been mounting. A source tells CNN Giuliani went down to Mar-a-Lago with his lawyer in recent months to make a desperate face-to-face -face appeal to Trump and ask him to help pay. So on some level, I think it's important to step back, especially in this moment, four different indictments, a calendar. You look at it, it looks a little bit empty there. It is not. And also, by the way, as we've been talking about repeatedly, this is not just about the cases. It's not just the legal. The political is deeply intertwined in it. So he has a lot on his plate, the former president. Yeah. When are these trials going to happen? That is the question of today and really the next few weeks. And it's so important on so many levels. We do now have four indicted cases, and they're all jockeying for very limited position on the calendar. The only way to understand this, I think, is to just see it visually. Now, here, November, of course, is the election. That's a crucial day. Are they going to get these cases tried before then? Let's look at what we have as of this moment. The New York case, the hush money case, is scheduled for trial at the end of March. That will go through April. Then you have Jack Smith's Florida case, the Mar-a-Lago documents case, scheduled to begin in late May. That is going to go through June and into July. Okay, doesn't look so bad so far, but here's what's new. Jack Smith's team has asked for their other case, the January 6th case. They want that to start in the beginning of January. Now, today, Donald Trump's team is going to respond to this. They're going to say we want it probably somewhere out here, way right. beyond the election. But if Jack Smith's team gets its way, that trial is going to take four months conservatively. Now, we've already got a problem here in March and April. You think that could get worse? Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County DA in Georgia now wants her case to start in the beginning of March. Now we've got trials potentially double and triple tracked. And if this is all making your head hurt, here's what I can tell you. Trial dates always move. These dates, I suspect, they have to move. This can't all play out. How do I think it's most likely to play out? I think we're most likely to see Jack Smith's case, one or both of them potentially tried before the election. I think the two state cases, New York and Georgia, are likely to move out. Alvin Bragg, the New York DA, has already stated publicly that he's willing to consider moving his. So we've got a collision coming here, and it's crucial to see which ones get tried. A lot more to come, clearly, and I think it can't be definitive on dates on anything yes. just because of all those elements. By the way, respect the hustle drawing on the magic wall. Been there, man. Your handwriting much better than getting, mine. <laughs> handwriting on the wall is it's, an it's art tough, of its right? own. It's tough, right? It's tough. I do want to ask you, though, Caitlin Consett and yeah. Paul Rita, this great reporting last night about how Rudy Giuliani, who Caitlin Polance had reported was in dire financial straits, had gone down to Mar-a-Lago, was basically saying he desperately needed help yeah. from the former president. Not to get too into Hollywood movies, but if you're a defendant and you need help on money and the one you might blame for the issues is not helping you, what does that mean? This is the second big question to watch. Who else is going to get charged in these cases? Who else is going to flip? In the new case, the, the Georgia case, the Fulton County case, there are 19 defendants, Donald Trump and 18 others, including... Mr. Giuliani, will any of them choose to serve their best interests financially and perhaps in the legal system by flipping against Donald Trump? We've not seen any indication that any of these folks have flipped. But let's also remember, in the other case, in the other 2020 election case, the federal case, these six people, including Rudy again, 
are co-conspirators. They're not charged, but they could find themselves, all of them have been indicted in the Georgia case. They all could find themselves with a second indictment. And so these incentives do pile up, Phil. We've not seen any indication that any of these insiders will flip, but you never know. Things change after people get charged. Things change, but to your point, Rudy Giuliani doesn't seem to be headed in that direction based on his public comments running out of up options. to this point. Yeah. All right, Poppy. Guys, thank you. Less than a week to go until the first Republican primary debate sources close to former President Trump tell CNN he may skip it. They say he may also consider counter-programming for the debate or even doing an interview with fired Fox News host Tucker Carlson. This is part of new reporting from our colleague Alana Treen, who joins us now from Washington, D.C. Morning. Uh, what else are you learning about what he might do Wednesday night? All right. Well, good morning, Poppy. And yes, you're right. The all indications that I'm getting from Donald Trump's team is that he is not going to participate in that debate next week. Of course, with the hedge, which I included in the story, is that this is Donald Trump we're talking about. I've covered him for years, and his team tells me that there's always a small, cha- a small chance that he may decide in the 11th hour that he ultimately wants to go. Of course, there's logistical questions to whether he would even be able to do that, um, but most likely he will not be on that debate stage next week. And instead, he, tr- Donald Trump himself has been personally throwing out ideas for counter-programming. There have been discussions between Donald Trump's team and Tucker Carlson about an interview uh, around the same time on Wednesday. Um, Of course, this all comes as Donald Trump is feuding openly with Fox News and Rupert Murdoch and uh, Tucker Carlson clearly has left uh, Fox News. And so some motivations there, I think, behind the scenes. Um, I'm also told that Donald Trump's team wants some of his surrogates to represent him at the debate, especially if he is not there. People like uh, Byron Donalds, a congressman from Florida, as well as Matt Gates, uh, Matt Gates, another congressman from Florida, and Kerry Lake, uh, the gubernatorial candidate in Arizona. Um, all of these people potentially there to represent him in his absence. And one more thing, Poppy, that I find really interesting that I've been picking up in my conversations is that Donald Trump has been telling people, uh, you know, this week even, that there was a dinner last month where Fox News executives, the president, Jay Wallace, as well as uh, their chief executive, Suzanne Scott, they traveled to Bedminster and encouraged Donald Trump to participate in the debate. And Trump personally is telling people he thinks that shows that Fox is worried about ratings without him. And so he's feeling like he's in a strong position not to attend next week. Alana Treen, thank you very much. We'll see where, what he does, maybe even at the 11th hour, as you said. Right. Thanks. Some troubling news we're following this morning. Cancer diagnosis rates are on the rise for younger Americans. That's according to a new study. And there's a certain gender and age group seeing the biggest surge. Dr. Sanjay Gupta will break down the findings coming up. Also, actor Bradley Cooper facing some heat for wearing a prosthetic nose in a new movie about Leonard Bernstein. The legendary composer's family is rushing to his defense. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, Canada has declared a state of emergency in its northwest territories where more than 230 active wildfires are burning in what officials are calling a crisis situation. Those officials say the capital, Yellowknife, is now under threat from the spreading fires, heavy smoke and flames. Thousands of people have been ordered to evacuate. Some are being told to leave now, others by noon tomorrow. New this morning, the death toll from Hawaii's devastating wildfires has now risen to 111. Hawaii's Governor Josh Green told CNN last night he estimates there are still more than 1,000 people missing. Search teams have now gone through just 38 percent of the area. They're still searching for more victims. At a news conference last night, Maui's police chief gave this devastating update. Have we found remains that 
are maybe smaller than other remains? I'm not going to sit here and sensationalize that. But the answer to that is yes. But we haven't, and what I'm talking about is children. Okay? So we're going to do this right. I have to, we have to identify them and then notify them. But that's what we're dealing with. And we have learned from county officials the name of five of the victims. 74-year-old Robert Dykeman, 79-year-old Buddy Jantock, 71-year-old Melva Benjamin, 90-year-old Virginia Dofa, and 79-year-old Alfredo Gallinato. CNN has also confirmed with, from families the names of two other victims, 68-year-old Franklin Trejos. He lived in Lahaina for three decades. His niece tells CNN her uncle was a kind man, a nature lover, and an animal lover. Carol Hartley also lived on the island for 36 years. Her sister says she will remember her as a special loving person from a young age who always looked for the good in people. This is survivors right now want to know why the warning sirens did not go off as Maui in Maui as the wildfire began to rage. CNN's chief climate correspondent Bill Weir has the latest on the effort to temper the flames on the ground in Kula, the neighborhood in Maui. Phil, Poppy, aloha again from Kula, Maui, where the effort to put out these pesky hotspots in this upcountry fire uh, continue. This is Maui Fire Department with the yellow bucket. You recall our report from yesterday where they we had guys out in these canyons with bottled water trying to put smoking hotspots uh, down and, until they actually eventually got some help uh, from this chopper here. Uh, but the latest here is just that death toll continues to tick up in a way that has people worried about whether it'll jump, if this will just be a, a sort of a constant uh, one or two a day. About a third of the area in Lahaina Town has now been searched. They've radically increased the number of dogs. Now, I believe the governor said there's 40 dogs working that scene now, so that they should be able to get... Uh, a lot more covered in the near term here. I did see a couple of folks in FEMA vests talking to homeowners today, maybe trying to get them into the system to make a claim for a one-time cash payment or get some housing repair help. But if your house looks like this, there's not going to be any repairs. Uh, so for working class, especially native Hawaiians, there's a lot of worry that they'll be tempted to sell or, or can't afford to rebuild and dwindling that soul, the cultural heart and soul of Hawaii, the natives, uh, is a great worry to a lot of folks here, especially in rebuilding Lahaina Town. There's concerns it could turn into a, another Honolulu. Uh, there's a lot of talk about the alarm system. We continue to get conflicting information about what happened uh, with the governor saying that maybe some of those sirens were old and uh, didn't go off. We did hear from the fire chief who says it was never set off in the first place that the communication between the field and somebody at a computer to start the alarm broke down given the speed of the fire. There were tests. They do test these alarms uh, at the first of every month. So a lot of questions there for the investigation as that is unfolding. Uh, the president and first lady coming on Monday. We'll see if that solves any wounds from a lot of people who feel abandoned here. Still no signs of National Guard, although they say they've doubled the number of troops now close to 500 to help put out these fires. We'll keep looking and keep you posted as best we can. Uh, let's kick it back to you guys in the studio. Bill, we're on the ground there. Keeps bringing us a reporting bill. Thank you. Meantime, rates of cancer diagnoses rising among really young Americans. That's according to a new government-funded study just published. 
And it found that women in their 30s drove that increase uh, by a large majority. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, looking at all of this. I was just so surprised that it was women so young. Morning. Morning. Yeah, this, this is a bit of a, a warning call. Uh, I think we have to look at this data and, and read into it and understand what's, what's going on here. If someone is diagnosed under the age of 50, that's considered early onset cancer, uh, early onset diagnosis. What they were trying to figure out is how much has this changed over the last 10 years or so? What are we seeing? Are we seeing more of these cases being diagnosed in younger people? And the answer, just like you said, is yes. It's primarily people in their 30s that are driving that increase and primarily women. Let me just show you, uh, per 100,000 back in 2010, had about 100 cases diagnosed in that age group. Go fast forward 10 years roughly, and it's closer to 103. So it's about a 3% increase over that 10 years. Doesn't sound like a lot, but if you start to extrapolate and, and fast forward even further into the future, the concern is that those numbers will continue to balloon. Uh, but again, it, it, is, it is primarily women. So men did not have the same increase, and you did not see that same increase in people over the age of 50 as well. So Sanjay, the obvious question here is why? Do we know what's accounting for the increase? We're not sure, and this is a this is a, a topic of, of significant debate right now within the oncology community, trying trying to decipher these numbers. First of all, we do know what the types of cancers are that were sort of driving the increase: uh, breast cancer, for example, um, thyroid cancer, and colon cancer. Those are the three that were sort of driving it. There are some others uh, on the list as well, but th those are the primary three. You know, it, it could be a combination of a couple things, really. One is that we are better at screening for these cancers than we were even 10, 20 years ago. So we may be simply catching more cancers. That could be part of it, but talking to oncologists, they don't think that accounts for everything. The other, the other thing is that probably at the age now where people are in their 30s, there's a significant, a higher percentage of people who are obese than there were you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, we know when people are taking in lots of glucose, developing lots of insulin as a result, uh, in addition to creating fat in the bodies, that can also fuel cancers. So that could also be part of it, just the general unhealth. But those are, those are sort of the, the, the top sort of two ideas. Again, it's, it's a subject of debate. A lot of people want to figure it out, obviously, to try and bring these numbers down. How can we, can we keep it from becoming a bigger problem, Sanjay? Well, you know, I think one of the things is we still know that there's a utility in, in screening tests. Um, you know, uh, it was a, about a month ago that we did a report talking about colon cancer rates going up among young people specifically. Uh, screenings can help, <clears throat> obviously not talking about people in their 30s, but once you get into your uh, 40s, you know, if, you, if you're talking about mammography or colon cancer screening, there are specific recommendations there in terms of when to get those screenings. Mammography really starting at age 45, unless you have a family history, and then 55 years getting it yearly or every other year. And for colon cancer screenings, uh, beginning those screenings again at 45 as well. Um, I, I think that the larger issue here, though, again, is, is looking at the general health. If it is true, and it seems to be that the same things that are driving obesity could also be driving cancer rates, fueling the body, mm -hmm. fueling these cancers at the same time, mm -hmm. we have to address that. Uh, there's just a higher percentage of people who are obese now than there were, you know, when I was in that age. I'm, I'm over 50 now, and, you know, I, I don't think you guys are. But, you know, we do find that people over the age of 50, their cancer rates have stayed relatively flat. So there might be some information in there as well as to what to do in the future. Yeah. All right, really important. Thanks so much, Dr. Sanjay Gupta.
You got it. Thank you. Well, there's the campaign trail, and this cycle there are campaign trials ahead when the Fulton County's DA is hoping to begin her trial against the former president and his 18 co-defendants. And we'll talk to two witnesses who testified before the grand jury just hours before Monday's indictment. Stay with us. You're looking right now at live pictures from outside the Fulton County Jail. That's where Donald Trump and his co-defendants have to turn themselves in by next Friday. If the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, has her way, Donald Trump will be facing trial in Georgia the day before Super Tuesday. It's a big if, but Willis asked for a judge, uh, asked a judge for a March 4th start date for Trump and his 18 co-defendants who are accused of conspiring to overturn the 2020 election result in the state. A trial would be just one of several potential trials that would collide directly with the 2024 presidential campaign schedule. Willis's date, however, just a proposal. A judge gets a final say. And this just in, we're seeing the first polling since these indictments in Georgia. According to an ABC Ipsos poll, 47 percent say the charges are very serious and 16 percent say they're somewhat serious. Joining us now to talk about all of this, two witnesses who testified before the Fulton County Grand Jury on Monday, just hours before that indictment was returned. CNN political commentator and former Republican Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, and former Georgia State Senator Jen Jordan. Guys, I want want to start with the reporting we had at the top of the show from Donnie O'Sullivan in terms of uh, the jurors. You spoke to them. You both spoke to them. Uh, You you both said they took their jobs very seriously. It was very sober uh, and, and heavy kind of moment. Their names were in, uh, as they were supposed to be based on Georgia law, the indictment. They are now being doxxed. Their names are now floating around. There are threats being directed at them. You guys, I think, have faced similar types of threats over the course of the last couple of years. What's your response to what we're seeing right now? Yeah, I think that this is just kind of a prelude of what's to come. Um, I I wish that Georgia law didn't require that their names to be in there, but it does. Um, But it is incredibly serious. Um, The lieutenant governor and I both had significant threats against our lives and our families. And look, we played such a small role. Um, But if you have Trump supporters who really look at these grand jurors as kind of the reason that this case is going forward, um, you know, and with Trump saying, you know, this isn't true, these are lies. I mean, these people's lives are in danger and their families are in danger. and, And it's very, very serious. I keep thinking about whether that law needs to be amended in Georgia for such high profile RICO, especially cases like this. The Trump one is one. It's terrible what's happening. I mean, their names are just like right there on page nine in the indictment. But the other uh, Young Thug case that's going on right now, and there's just a lot of high profile cases that um, these jurors have no choice whether to participate, right. it's their constitutional duty, and whether their names are out there. Yeah, I had, law be I had, yeah, I had no idea that that was the law. Uh, certainly my first time going through this grand jury process as, as, a, as a witness. But yeah, I can't imagine there's any value to publishing those names and putting them out there. But I, I think this speaks to the culture that Donald Trump has built, right? this culture of anger, right? And it's, it's, he's just confused so many good-hearted Republicans and, and, and folks all across the country to think that conservatism means you've got to be angry and loud and visceral. That has nothing to do with conservatism. And so to think anybody would, would take out the angst on these folks uh, or us or anybody else that's been involved in this process, calling balls and strikes uh, is, is painful. Well, I think, I think the bigger issue really is, I mean, these are just the grand jurors. Can you imagine who, 
is going to be sitting on the jury and what they're going to be subjected to. And we already saw the threat to the judge in the federal case. Absolutely. This law would be the same, right? As I understand it, this is not just about grand juries. Would this also be about the jury in Georgia in the criminal trial? Well, they would... You know, in Fulton County, there's going to be a camera, right? Yeah. These folks are going to be on screen every day. Everyone is going to know who they are. Their lives are going to be turned upside down. And so just to be able to sit a jury um, of people who would be even willing to put, you know, their lives on the line um, is going to be really, really difficult. So it's something that we all need to be thinking about. I know that the DA's office is, um, but but it is, you know, it's serious. Jeff? Flipping to the political side of things, because you have been very clear for months now, including in the wake of this case, that this is the moment where Republicans need to pivot after the first indictment, the second indictment, the third indictment, the fourth indictment. Um, There's a big debate coming up. You look at the new polling we were just talking about. It's a snapshot. It doesn't tell the whole story, but I think we had 47 percent say the charges are very serious. 16 percent say somewhat serious. There's some other polling that showed 53 percent of Americans believe that he definitely did something illegal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously, if you just take a Republican primary electorate, I think it's much smaller uh, Mm -hmm. by a significant degree. Um, In these first few days, do you see any of what you wanted to happen for the party, even on the periphery, starting to happen? I do. Uh, there's certainly uh, some, some motions starting to go in a different direction, right? We're just hearing conversations. Uh, there's a lot of inquiries around what is next, right? And, and I think we have to break this down as a business problem. Donald Trump went on a multi-year crime spree. And I think Americans, I think specifically Republicans, are starting to see that. Even if the 35% of, of Republicans that are in love with Donald Trump are starting to realize it's an impossible mathematical equation to win the election. And I think we have to break this down like a business problem. Right? We've got to go attack. If, if 35% are diehard in love with Donald Trump, then we need to go figure out who those 65% are and message to them. And then we need to simplify it even more. Let's go figure out a way to short-circuit the, the caucuses in Iowa, in New Hampshire. Let's go take those big-dollar donor, donors that are out there that haven't jumped in yet and get them behind a full-scale effort to flip that 20% lead that Donald Trump's got in Iowa and then roll into New Hampshire. And now we can reset the, reset the stage. But there's never been a better time for GOP 2.0 to show up and to really lead with our policies, right? Instead of us talking about Donald Trump, what if we were talking about that only 36% of Americans, Americans think Joe Biden's uh, responsible uh, enough to handle the economy? I feel like those calls have been happening. a bad new poll for him. Yeah, it just came out this morning. We should be talking about that as a But to your point, though, I feel like those calls have been happening behind the scenes between pretty significant donors, between Republican operatives for the last eight, 10 months. It's now or never. And I'm calling on candidates. I'm calling on, I I don't want to see more press conferences like Tim Scott's yesterday or Ron DeSantis's or Nikki Haley's, where they kind of tiptoe around the issue. You need to call Donald Trump out for being a liar and on his way to be a felon. And we need to move forward as, as well, they're going to get called out on the debate <clears throat> stage by people like Chris Christie. Yeah, for and, and they should. That line. But look, and Jeff, that's really commendable. But we've been at this point together, right? We thought I thought January 6th was going to be that pivot point. Yeah. If that couldn't be the pivot point, why do we think this is? And while you've been calling it out, everybody else in Georgia in terms of Republicans have been tipped to Well, Brian Kemp yeah, this week. Yeah, that was the exception I was going to make. Important. I mean, I think the play to run is, is Brian Kemp's play, right? Go but, put conservatism on display, go win the right, go win the middle, and even get some folks on the left to beat a well-funded, well-name-ID'd uh, uh, opponent like Stacey Abrams. Yeah, but, you know, the whole idea is, is that um, the governor 
was for Trump until he wasn't, right? And that's how it is. These folks who are looking at statewide runs in Georgia that are Republicans, they aren't going to call them out. And they aren't. And we know that. So while it's commendable, and I really appreciate you doing that, the idea that this is some kind of pivot point, I just don't think it is. I would argue uh, Brian Kemp was against Donald Trump during COVID when we had to push back on that. He was against him when he made his own Senate nominee instead of taking Donald Trump's handpick. Brian Kemp has been his own man for four years. Right. And by the way, he won by a significant margin in a state Trump and both Republican point. senators he lost. He Purdue by 52 points. That's a lot. That's in politics. Yeah, that's a lot. That's no, a that's lot. a lot. Guys, Guys we enjoyed this comeback sure. together. Yeah, thank, you. thank you very much. Former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, Jen Jordan, we appreciate it. Uh, this also first on CNN, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke by phone to American Paul Whelan, who has been detained in Russia for more than four years. And a source tells CNN it was a long and a frank phone call with Blinken giving Whelan words of encouragement, telling him to keep the faith as they work to bring him home. His brother, David, also spoke to CNN and says they view this as a really positive step. I think that uh, Secretary Blinken has obviously sent a message, and uh, that message uh, is for Paul and for our family, that uh, the U.S. government is continuing to advocate for Paul and his release. Uh, and I think it's also a message for the Kremlin uh, that uh, that the U.S. government hasn't let up. And in fact, uh, their lead foreign policy person uh, is, is willing to call a prisoner, which is, I think, astounding. So U.S. officials do say Russia has not responded in a substantive way to the proposals raised so far. We'll keep a close eye on this. Well, Christian Bale famously played Michael Burry in The Big Short, an investor who made millions betting against the housing market. Next, what's behind his latest big bet on a stock market crash? And this just in, it is still very much a Barbie world. We're just living in it. We'll show you the new records this movie has shattered. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Look, Michael, Metro Capital. Back to four years ago when you were a doctor with a dinky web page and some inheritance money. We've all done very well. Why don't you just stick with stocks? Look, you know me. I, 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 I look for value wherever it can be found. It's only a matter of time before someone else sees this investment. We have to act now. That was Christian Bale playing hotshot investor Michael Murray, Burry in the Academy Award-winning film The Big Short. The real Burry famously made millions betting against the housing market before the catastrophic collapse in 2008. But now Wall Street investors are, well, he is taking notice of, Wall Street investors are taking notice of his latest wager despite very successful years for the NASDAQ and the S&P. Burry has bet more than $1.6 billion on the market crashing apparently putting a big chunk, more than 90% of his portfolio on that. But there's a little more to it. Let's have our Julia Chatterley join us now for more on this. People pay attention to what he does. What's he really doing here? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, my first uh, boss in finance said to me, Julia, to be a great trader, you need to be right 51% of the time. And the Hermione Granger in me thought, I'm going to hate this job. And actually, he was right. But the same rule applies here. Um, what he's done is buy insurance. He's taken big bets that will make money if the market goes down. Beyond that, it's tough to see what else is going on. These bets may still not be valid. They may have run off by now. 
We don't know really in terms of what the market was doing, whether this was part of a bigger strategy. So you have to be a bit careful. I can tell you in that awful previous life, I used to do this a lot with clients. And what I would do was protect what they owned already. If I thought turbulence was coming or I thought that the market may trip over. And if you take a step back and look what's going on today, that's a possibility. To your point, you mentioned the markets have had a great run this year. Perhaps it's time to take a bit of protection or take some money off the table. The other thing to consider here, I think, as well, is the economic data. Look at the Fed minutes yesterday. We've got into a comfortable position where we think the Federal Reserve is done with their rate hikes. What actually, given the strength of the data, happens if they have to hike rates again? That's going to cause some problems too. And the other thing I think that's interesting in what Michael did, he sold Chinese stocks. Mm -hmm. The Chinese officials this week said their recovery has been torturous. That's a drag on economic growth too. So for all these reasons, my view would be don't panic. Listen to what he's saying. Listen to other discordant notes. But if you're worried about what to do with your 401k, no knee-jerk reactions, please. You have to win because so this is your favorite. No, I've addressed, she is so I was good. like this reading the 13F this morning the and she like nailed all of the things that are important. I understand the big headline number, but like the inside, the context really and the careful. depth of the actual filing tells you a lot of different stories. Don't draw yeah. too many conclusions. And he's buying too. He's buying healthcare stocks CBS. and consumer stocks. So, um, yeah, we'll leave the crash word out of this. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Barbie hasn't even been in theaters for a full month and the blockbuster is still not finished breaking records. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Yeah. You guys ever think about dying? It is indeed, Poppy. It best is day the best ever. day ever. From now until forever for Barbie. The movie has just topped 2008's The Dark Knight to become Warner Brothers' highest grossing domestic release ever. The rest of the world it seems to have caught pink fever too. Last week, the comedy joined the $1 billion club at the worldwide box office. It could be on track to become the highest grossing film of the year. Joining us now, Vanity Fair staff writer who covers entertainment and popular culture. I learned a ton from reading him, Chris Murphy. Uh, we should note up front, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery is CNN's parent company. Um, what I'm fascinated by is this is there's a number of countries, foreign countries in particular, that have not gotten necessarily onto the Barbie bandwagon, oh. to say the least. And still. And still, it's made one point, almost $1.2 billion at the global box office. Yeah, Barbie is banned in various countries, including Kuwait, Vietnam, Algeria. It might be banned in Lebanon, uh, which gave it a much sort of uh, uphill climb to sort of become a global sensation. You know, other movies like the Super Mario Brothers movie, which is the biggest movie of the year, I don't think Mario is banned anywhere else in the world. But Barbie, Barbie was able to probably surpass the amount of money that Super Mario has made, um, despite the fact that it's banned places. One of the many things I think is so brilliant about this film is the fact that, that Greta Gorig and they were able to write a script and direct a film that took a stereotypical, uh, often sort of shunned now doll, saying it's too perfect, blah, 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 body, many serious body image concerns, completely flip it on its head and have such a pro-feminist message. It's genius. It's absolutely genius. And it shows that, you know, when you put women in front of the camera and behind the camera. Ah, good you, things happen? Good things happen, actually. Actually, there's a <laughs> USC study that comes out today that says that uh, in the past year for the top 100 grossing films, uh, less than a quarter of uh, the directors, the writers, and the producers are women. Guess what? Barbie has a female director in Greta Gerwig, 
co-writer in Greta Gerwig with her partner Noah Baumbach. And Margot Robbie is the star and also an executive producer. So I think that goes to show you got to put women all over. I would like it noted that Margot Robbie also outplanked Ryan Gosling. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah. She, and it was also, the plank was like five minutes. Five minutes. Which is five minutes. totally insane. <laughs> um, I think there's a trend is what you guys are trying to yes. say here. Uh, I do want to ask you about one other thing. We saw the, the, the issue about Bradley Cooper uh, playing Leonard Bernstein in a movie. There was so, some uh, outrage, probably isn't the word. People were upset about a prosthetic nose, and yet Leonard Bernstein's family was very quick and very effusive in their praise and backing of Cooper. Why? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, Bradley Cooper landed in some hot water because of prosthetic nose that he's using in Maestro. Um, people said that it was anti-Semitic and akin to blackface, but the Bernstein family and the Bernstein children came to support Bradley Cooper immediately after. They said that they were perfectly fine with the nose. They even said that their father had a very nice big nose in the joint statement. And they said that Cooper involved them in every part of the process along the way and that they sort of unequivocally stand by Cooper. So he has the family's blessing to make the movie and make the movie the way that he decided to make it. Great to have you, Chris. Come yeah, back come soon. back. Let's do this often. <laughs> yes. All right. Back to politics. That was fun, though. I enjoyed that uh, and informative. Tim Scott is a viable option for Republicans who have soured, by, uh, soured on to the former president. It's the big question that everybody's asking right now. We're going to hear from some Republicans who are having a change of heart after backing the former president in the past. That's next. I kind of wish Trump would just fade, to be honest with you. I voted for him twice. I'd vote for him again. But I kind of wish he'd just take a step to the side. Iowa Republicans are giving presidential candidate Tim Scott a closer look. The South Carolina senator has been making the rounds at the Iowa State Fair, speaking to voters as he looks to elevate himself above other candidates in the crowded GOP field, ahead of those critical debates. CNN's Eva McKen has more on the story. That's 100%. How many of you love Senator Scott? Everybody is the answer Senator Tim Scott and his campaign are looking for this week in Iowa. How are y'all? Campaigning hand-to-hand, flip to French fry. But the main political attraction during Scott's visit to the famed State Fair Tuesday was news of frontrunner Donald Trump's fourth criminal indictment. Continue to say it as I see it, which is that we see the legal system being weaponized against political opponents. That is un-American and unacceptable. Scott attacking the legal process instead of the former president trying to keep his campaign positive. And showing little appetite to take on any candidate, even Trump, despite mounting legal woes. The Trump's lead here in Iowa is insurmountable. No, of course not. Why not? That's why I'm campaigning, because I believe that my optimistic, positive message is being rooted in Iowa and that, frankly, our poll numbers continue to go up. That optimism comes as some Iowans tell CNN they're sick of Trump, who still holds a dominant lead in the race. I'm considering other other people that I think would also do a good job, maybe without some of the conflict that Senator, or President Trump has with all the lawsuits. I kind of wish Trump had just fade, to be honest with you. Scott and his supporters have blanketed Iowa and New Hampshire with more than $10 million worth of ads. At an event in Cambridge, Iowa, he saw the payoff firsthand. I say in my commercials, if you take out a loan, you pay it back. Hallelujah. Y'all, this is great, man. We love it. 
Y'all are starting to see the commercials. This is good news. I was wondering if they were buying anything with all that money I was spending. In the Hawkeye state, a whopping 69% of likely caucus goers say they have a favorable view of Scott according to a recent poll. His pursuit of momentum will have to carry into next week's debate, a crucial test and opportunity, with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis seeking to reboot his campaign and Trump's appearance on the stage very much in doubt. Scott is convinced he can compete. I'm going to continue to run this race for one objective. It's to be the president of the United States. His campaign just releasing this video. You get in the race for president to win. What is your campaign strategy to gain momentum between now and the debate? Well, the good news is we're going to continue to do what we have been doing, which is focusing on an optimistic, positive message anchored in conservatism with a backbone. And new this morning, we're learning that Scott's campaign is placing an $8 million ad buy. That is the second major ad buy since the campaign launched in May. Phil, Poppy? They've got money. Let's see if they have momentum. Eva McKen, great piece. Thank you. Well, the Fulton County DA wants former President Trump to go on trial in early March, right before Super Tuesday. We're going to discuss whether that timeline is realistic. That's coming up next. Morning, everyone. It's top of the hour. So glad you're with us here on CNN this morning. We do have some news just into CNN. It looks like the Fulton County grand jury, those jurors, may have been doxxed online after indicting Donald Trump. Photos and home addresses appear to, that appear to belong to those jurors are circulating on pro-Trump forums and sites that have been linked to violent extremist attacks. Also this morning, 111 people, including children, are now confirmed dead as the death toll from that catastrophic wildfire in Maui on Maui continues to soar. More than 1,000 people are still missing, with only 38% of the disaster zone even searched. Also in Wyoming, a head librarian fired after refusing to remove books that were deemed sexually inappropriate for children by the library's board. That librarian joins us live. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. All right, this is where we begin this morning. We do have a disturbing development in Donald Trump's criminal case in Fulton County, Georgia. It looks like the grand jury that voted to indict him may have been doxxed online. Photos, social media profiles, even home addresses that appear to belong to those grand jurors are circulating on these pro-Trump forums and sites that have been previously linked to violent extremist attacks. CNN has learned some anonymous users are calling for violence against those jurors. And this all comes as a Texas woman was charged with threatening to kill the judge in Trump's federal election case. Now, investigators say she left a voicemail for the judge saying, quote, if Trump doesn't get elected in 2024, we are coming to kill you, so tread lightly. With us now, CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller, CNN political analyst and White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour, Laura Barone-Lopez, and former U.S. attorney in the Middle District of Georgia, Michael Moore. John, I want to start with you on the threats and the arrest uh, related to the federal, the judge in the federal case. Um, what does this tell you about the trajectory of things going forward here? Well, it's predictable. You know, you have um, Donald Trump himself saying, if you come after us, we come after you. He's made statements about the judge in the Manhattan case. Uh, he's made statements about the prosecutor in Washington, about the judge in Washington. about. So he has set the table for his supporters. Um, so when a phone call comes into a federal judge, uh, 
starting off with racist comments, hey, you stupid slave, N-word, threatening to kill her, saying if Donald Trump isn't president in 2024, we're coming for you, we're putting you on notice. Um, this is part of these atmospherics that has the sheriff in Georgia, who's receiving his own threats, mm -hmm. the DA, the Manhattan DA, increasing security details. The key here, and this case is um, uh, an example of it, the, the, the threat to the judge of the Washington case, but now let's look at the extent of the grand jurors. Uh, the key here is going after these people and showing there's a consequence for this. You know, Georgia law, Title 16, Chapter 20, makes it a crime, punishable by 20 years, up to 20 years, um, to threaten a grand juror or a juror for any judgment or verdict. So um, they're going to have to be very forward-leaning in making sure that these threats come at a cost. You know Georgia law very well, Michael, um, and this is the law. I didn't know it until this indictment came out, but this is a law for transparency reasons. Right. Is this also the law in Georgia for, so will the jurors will all be known in the criminal trial then as well? They'll be known. There'll be a, um, if, the, if the trial's televised, I think it will be, uh, there would not be at, at that point, uh, you know, pictures of the jurors on television and they would block the jury. Yeah, they don't show them. I was, they, would, yeah. they would do that, but you know, some of but this, their names would be released. Yeah, they'll, they'll be known. I mean, some of some of this um, comes a little bit with the territory, and I don't. I'm not, uh, you know, suggesting that what's going on is right, but it's not uncommon for people to be threatened. If you're a prosecutor or a judge, that's you, you kind of get used to that. What you what you don't hear about often is this kind of carrying on with, with with grand jurors. You never hear about that, and I think probably this will blow over. But the key is really, as you say, to prosecute it and do it with a heavy hand quickly. Uh, and not necessarily try to make a motion, for instance, for a protective order in this case, because you can't link it directly back to a defendant. Uh, but you can because the law allows you to go forward in Georgia to prosecute these individuals quickly and, 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 uh, and make and sure that the message. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, they, and, it, sh and it should be done uh, w without hesitation. I mean, somebody mm -hmm. ought to be taking a warrant this morning. I mean, the uh, anomaly here is you can't prosecute the people who did the doxing because the state created a public record, but you can prosecute the people who would, who would use that information to make, to make a, a threat. threat. That's yeah. correct. You know, Laura, one of the things, I think to some degree people in the lead up to January 6th would get a little bit numb or dismissive of Trump when he would tweet something, Trump when he mm -hmm. would say something, Trump has attacked judges before, Trump has attacked prosecutors before. This is kind of the norm for him and it's easy to ignore it or pass it off. Um, and I think then you reach situations like this where you say, all right, is this really problematic? Is this just somebody whose threat that's empty? Or is this really driving something that could bring violence to some degree? I think it's driving something that could bring violence, which is what we saw. I mean, it's, on January 6th was one of the most, it was one of the biggest examples of what happens when, that, when people take that rhetoric and decide to act, which is that they'd heard for months in the lead up to January 6th lies about the election, that, that the presidency was being stolen. And then they decided to go there because the president encouraged them to go to the Capitol. And um, so we've seen the results of that. People died that day. Officers died that day. Uh, some of one of Trump supporters died that day. And um, just recently also, there was a man that was killed by FBI in Utah for threatening the life of President Biden, as well as uh, D.A. Alvin Bragg, as well as other elected officials. And laced in all of this uh, is racism, as uh, was pointed out. And Trump 
is very specific about the language that he uses when he talks about black jurists. He uses the word thug, thugs, uh, repeatedly when he talks about black jurists. And that's a signal that he's sending to his base. I, I think we're beyond the point where uh, we can look at those comments and those threatening comments from the former president and think that he isn't aware of who is reading them and who is watching them and the fact that um, extremism groups look at uh, what he posts and then they potentially act based on what he says. Uh, everyone stay with us. I want to get your take on this next uh, reporting. We have that attorneys representing the survivors and family members of last year's racist mass shooting at a Buffalo grocery store have now filed two lawsuits in New York's Erie County. 18-year-old Peyton Gendron was sentenced to life in prison earlier this year for killing 10 people at the Topps Market. That was in May of 2022. The defendants in the suit include the shooter's parents, gun companies, and several social media companies, including YouTube, Reddit, and Google. According to the law, one of those lawsuits, quote, just as the shooter is being held to account criminally for his actions, the defendants named in this lawsuit must answer for their critical roles they played in facilitating this reprehensible mass shooting. CNN has reached out to all the companies as well as the attorneys for the parents, for the shooter's parents. We have not heard back yet. Um, let me start with you, John Miller. This has been difficult, to say the least, to hold especially gun companies and social media companies accountable. Is there any reason to believe on these grounds they might be successful in the effort? Maybe based on the facts of the case. You know, Peyton Gendron was a high school student who lived 200 miles outside of Buffalo in a small town. The parents of two engineers who grew up in a, a family of brothers and sisters. But... Um, in COVID, you know, he went down a deep, dark place in the internet, um, became fixated on this uh, racist propaganda. Here's the key. In a message board uh, at his high school saying, what are you looking to do after high school? What, what is the goal that you have? He says to commit a mass shooting, to commit a mass murder. This is flagged. Um, the state police investigate. He's taken to a medical facility. He's evaluated. Um, and he says, oh, I was just kidding. And from there, he's able to order a uh, rifle, uh, bulletproof vests, um, hundreds of rounds of ammunition. So facts of the case, uh, looking at this, you could say alarm bells should have been going off in different places. As a prosecutor, when you look at the role that technology companies have or are perceived to or alleged to have played in some of these, uh, many of these issues that we're talking about, is there anything you see space as space to go after them on a legal basis or to try and bring cases against them? Probably not much, and uh, just being candid, yeah. uh, as far as uh, from a prosecutor's standpoint, whether or not there's some criminal act that was done by the media company by uh, having uh, videos played or having a content accessible and those things. I mean, you balance it with the rights to have information out in the public domain. And so from a criminal side, no, but you know, this is a civil case. And that the bird is different and the standard is different and the point. allegations are different. And so these, um, there, there may be a way. It, they've not historically been successful mm -hmm. here. Uh, but you also, you know, have situations where they're talking about parental liability and other things as, as well in, in, in cases. And all these are different uh, avenues to, to seek some redress here. I, I, I think the civil court, if they have any hope, is where 
uh, where, where you'll see some activity. Laura, there has been a bipartisan appetite in Washington to change um, what gives these social media companies such liberty, and that is Section 230, mm-hmm. which basically says we as companies are not responsible for the content on our sites. Where CNN is responsible for what we do, they're not, because they say we're not media companies. But it just keeps getting stalled. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason to believe that might change? Because changing that would change this a lot. Anytime before the election? No, I don't think it's going to happen. But that is something that even we were just talking about extremism and extremism experts are hopeful that something like that, the law will change because of the fact that um, uh, so much radicalization is occurring online more and more. This is also hard. Like the policy on it is hard. And I'm not putting the the politics as the critical thing, but Finding the overlap between the two parties on the actual in the weeds policy here right. is but very complex. But that's what complex. we pay them to no, do. No, I, hard I things, understand. Right? I'm very aware of yeah. that. Yeah, I yeah. have a very high level of expectations for our members of we Congress, do. which I appreciate. <laughs> All right, John, Laura, Michael, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So, will he or won't he? The new CNN reporting on what Trump could do if he skips out on next week's primary debate. That's next. This morning, negotiations underway for Donald Trump to surrender in Georgia. You're taking a live look now at the Fulton County Jail, where the former president has just eight days left to turn himself in on felony charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in the state. The district attorney there, Fonnie Willis, now asking the judge to start this trial on March 4th. That is a day before Super Tuesday, when Trump will be competing in more than a dozen presidential primaries. Let's bring in our colleague, senior crime and justice correspondent, Caitlin Polance. Caitlin, good morning to you. It's got a whole lot going on. We do, Poppy. So if this is the summer of the series of indictments against Donald Trump next year appears to be where it would be the year of trials. Now, we don't know exactly where all of these trials will ultimately land on the calendar, but all of the different prosecutors that have brought cases against Donald Trump, they want to do it between January and May. They want to take him to trial at a moment that is also quite intense for the political calendar, especially when candidates are looking to get their party nominations. Donald Trump obviously seeking the Republican nomination. But Poppy, One of the things we have heard so far and that we're watching to see if other cases will go the same route is that the judge in the federal case against Donald Trump related to January 6th has made quite clear that criminal trials take precedence over politics. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that Trump may need to try or he wants to try to hold off his trials and his court proceedings and the hearings before that because he has other things to do as a candidate, that might not hold a lot of sway in court very much so. It won't do much with prosecutors, but then also it will ultimately be up to the judges on where all of these things land on the calendar. I'm watching that federal case related to January 6th quite closely, because today Trump's team is going to say when they want that trial to be, they'll put their arguments out. And then the next 11 days, not only is he going to be arrested in Georgia in that case, the new case, the new indictment, but there will be hearings in other cases, including a hearing where they really get down to business about discussing when the trial will be in the federal case related to January 6th. Yeah. Bobby? A lot to watch. Caitlin, thank you very much. And watching all that with less than a week to go until that first Republican primary date, date, sources close to the former president telling CNN that he may skip next week's debate in Milwaukee. They say he may also be considering countering 
programming for that debate or even doing an interview with Fire Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Joining us once again, our CNN congressional correspondent Jessica Dean, CNN political analyst and White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour, Laura Barone Lopez. He could do a number of things. <laughs> he, could, he really could do anything. That's the thing, though. And I think to some degree, people trying to figure out what exactly he's going to do is a huge part of all of this, as we've seen repeatedly over the course of I'm not frustrated or that you annoyed. I, I just like to some degree, he's leading by 30 plus points. Mm -hmm. He knows that everybody's going to hang on what he's going to do and when he's going to do it. I think my bigger question right now is calendar wise and money wise, how does this actually affect the primary on a tangible basis? Not a what's he going to do basis. Right. So that was an official <laughs> basis, by the way. <laughs> I love uh, your enthusiasm. The, <laughs> so calendar-wise, um, we we just had uh, Michael Moore on here, you know, former prosecutor, who I verified with him because I've been talking to a number of prosecutors, and they think that quite a few of these trials could de get delayed. So there are these dates that the that DA Fonnie Willis wants March, March 4th. That's probably going to get pushed back because there's going to be pretrial motions. As soon as all of these co-defendants get discovery... Can you imagine picking a jury for these 19 co-defendants. Right, right. They get discovery. They're going to say, no, I want this thrown out. All these different motions trying to move it to federal, federal court. You know, Michael Moore just said to me that he thinks that it could get pushed into 2025. So <laughs> that's the reality here, where some of these maybe happen in the start in the primary. Some of them may not start till the general election is well underway. And that's where it could be really harmful if for the Republican Party if Trump is the nominee. So that's calendar um, when, and the potential impact. And what was the second thing you asked, Bill? You don't remember my base, my baselines? I'm sorry, Official you got a little too. Basis. It was all the enthusiasm. No, it was but, the enthusiasm. No, that's, I think that's a critical oh, the money. point. What I, yeah, what I was asking, the money here. We've been reporting over the course of the last couple of weeks. You look at the FEC filings, yep. there's clearly a crunch, not just for the campaign, also for the super PAC, the constellation of outside groups. Money's an issue. All these trials, all these motions, all of these dates cost money. They sure do. And it is just going out the door in millions of dollars trying to defend Trump on multiple fronts. And not only that, you have the money piece of it. You know, I've talked to, to experts over the last several days that say, look, it's one thing to get indicted in one case. That's hard enough to try to defend yourself on multiple fronts at the same time, in multiple cases, in multiple jurisdictions, is a very complicated thing. And it's hard, and it's expensive, and it's time-consuming. He's also running for president. And the debate is next week, as you just mentioned. It's on Wednesday. All of these things are colliding together. I was so struck. I really, you know, visually, it helps to see that calendar. And even if things do get delayed, which they most likely will, to, to Laura's point, you're still, that is, that is the issue that hangs over this Republican primary. And it is only going to get louder and louder and louder as we get closer to the day that Americans start voting. Do we have any indication of when or how Trump's going to surrender himself? Because it could bump up uh, right with the debate. That's true. Uh, no, and uh, I mean, they're clearly negotiating that right now with DA Fonnie Willis. I mean, it could very well happen the day of the debate, as Jessica has pointed out before. It could happen the day after the debate. If it happens the day after the debate, again, he's going to suck the oxygen away from all of those other Republican candidates uh, as they're trying to take uh, trying to actually convince voters without taking the most direct shocks, shots at the former president, convince the GOP base that they're better than he is. And, and it's just yet another example of how Trump has been able 
to keep the spotlight on himself at every juncture of this primary thus far. It has been pretty impossible for any other candidate, uh, despite different efforts, some not criticizing him, some trying to go all in on criticizing him. No one has been able to break through just yet. I do think that we need to remember that on the ground in a place like Iowa, things are more fluid than it feels like when we're talking about it in the national context. Those voters are very engaged with these other candidates. There are, it could move around and we do still have time. Uh, However, Those candidates are really looking to Wednesday. They've worked really hard to get on that debate stage. A lot of them just kind of just making the cutoff to get on that stage. And they were hoping that this could be the big moment. But if Trump surrenders on Wednesday or even Thursday, to Laura's point, that just it. Boom. That's it. We're not talking about that debate anymore. We're only talking about Trump. Can we talk about the fact that they're having to do debate prep now twice over, once with Trump on the stage and once without Right. Yeah. 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 They, they, people like Chris Christie are certainly preparing for whether or not they're going to be able to take, you know, uh, to take it directly to Trump or if he has to then pivot and target the Ron DeSantis more. I think one of the more interesting questions that I'm focused on right now is just the overall impact. Uh, look, right now, it looks like Donald Trump is going to pot- really be the Republican nominee. I know that things could change, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but, but just- that ultimately um, Republican or moderate Republican voters that I've been talking to just really are not willing to go back to the Republican Party. They don't see an opening for them, and and they're not happy with the way things are going right now. If I could just really quickly on the debate and the to Poppy's point, the, the the is Trump will Trump not be there? Also, what I'm really looking to is these candidates who have thus far defended Trump. In, in all of his legal troubles, so somebody like Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott, others, this is the weaponization of the government. If, if Trump is not on that stage, does someone, does Chris Christie, by proxy, go after those people? And are they then stuck having to defend Trump's actions? Yes. Right. I right? mean, what does that look like? Well, he's coming on the show tomorrow morning. We'll ask him. Uh, We're going to ask him, but a spoiler alert. Yes. Yes, Yes, he absolutely will. The answer is yes. I apologize for my enthusiasm. I get excited talking to you guys. Don't ever apologize. (laughs) Thank you, ladies. Thanks, guys. Nice to have you. Thank you. The death toll from Hawaii's devastating wildfires rising. Search teams have not even gone through half of the burnt area yet. A report from a community burned to the ground. We have that ahead. And Mick Fleetwood from the band Fleetwood Mac is a longtime resident who just lost his restaurant and the fires. You're going to hear our interview with him and how he is helping his community heal. That's coming up. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New this morning, the death toll from Hawaii's devastating wildfires has risen to 111. The police chief at a news conference overnight said, sadly, some of the remains they're finding are of children. Search teams have covered just about 38% of the area. They have an additional 225 people added to the search efforts, another 20 dogs as well. Hawaii's Governor Josh Green told CNN last night he estimates more than 1,000 people are still missing. Some homeowners are only now getting a look at what is left. Hawaii News Now reporter Mahalani Richardson reports from the ground in Lahaina, where she walked through a charred neighborhood. We are in the Kilauea neighborhood, which was destroyed by the fire. And just walking around, it, it's very hard to take in. Everything is burned. You see the utility lines still hanging. All of these cars have been just completely burned. And I have to tell you, there... It, 
there's a certain smell of this neighborhood. Um, it, it is smells of ash and chemicals and other things that I don't even know what it is. Uh, look at this. We keep hearing about the burned metal. Well, this is metal that was completely burned. And then you see those fine particles of ash. This is why the, this area, health officials have been saying that it is toxic. It is not good to be here. Uh, look at these cars. This, it's, it's unreal. The car windows just blown out and then the glass was melted. What really struck me about being in this neighborhood is that part of it was not destroyed. And now you have Kupuna just up that road with those homes that were not destroyed, but still covered with dust and soot. They are now walking to their homes for 10 minutes to half an hour just to get to their homes so that they can be there. Mahalani Richardson, Hawaii News Now. Well, as Lahaina lies in ruins, longtime Maui resident Mick Fleetwood is committed to helping his community heal. Fleetwood, a leader of the band, Fleetwood Mac, has lived on Maui for decades. It's his full-time home, not a vacation home. Last week, his popular restaurant, Fleetwood's on Front Street, was destroyed by the fires. It opened in 2012, had a roof terrace overlooking the ocean, and featured live entertainment. Here he was one year ago. We've had so many great days here, and this is home. Fleetwood's on Front Street. And this is his restaurant now, his 120 workers suddenly losing their employer. CNN's Omar Jimenez spoke with Fleetwood about what's next. Here's part of that conversation. What were you thinking when you first started seeing some of the images of what was happening in, in beautiful Maui? I was in L.A. visiting my, my children and for uh, two or three days was, quite frankly, unable to get back. And that happily uh, was put right, and I managed to get a plane uh, to come back. Co completely helpless, uh, and also in touch with my extended family here, and girlfriend and her family, and, and the ohana of uh, 120 people who worked at my restaurant that I gathered at some point uh, fairly early on was threatened, and then literally within minutes had gone. All of these things you're trying to sort of assimilate and then immediately clock in, click in to how, how to find out who is where, uh, which is the not only the appropriate thing, it's still continuing. There are people missing. Uh, we were blessed uh, in, in, the, in the restaurant that we didn't know where about 15 people were for quite a while. They, in this instance, were safe. As you know, many others, it was not to be uh, such a positive story. We're all in shock, and people are, are way more in shock than the person you're talking to now, being me. Uh, but elements of that, actually, I woke up this morning and turned around to my lovely girlfriend and just said, it's gone. Yeah. And then you start thinking about, it was full of, of family and funny things that people love to see, and all of that is completely utterly disappeared. Again, no relevance to the tragedy of losing life. What have you found has been either the most difficult thing that people have been trying to get, or just simply, what have you found uh, has been the, the thing that people have needed the most at this stage of this, uh, of this disaster? Well, the academics of that are, are food and shelter and something on your back. And, and and 
some modicum of safety being offered up. After that, I think really the overview of the most important thing, having said the initial things that, that hit so hard to people, is a sense that they have support and help is on the way, which of course is already here, but in the initial stages of anything like this, uh, that has to be thought of as the most important thing is when, it, when are people going to come and help? And then as we go down the road of, of, of absorbing the enormity of what has happened here, to, to keep the attention is often a huge uh, problem but uh, because the world we live in is here today, gone tomorrow. Governor uh, Josh Green has talked about trying to stop developers from buying lands that were destroyed by these fires because potentially they could be redeveloped in a way that, that isn't quite true to the history and the roots of some of these particular right. communities. How should that rebuilding process start? This is a, a huge blow to the history and the legacy of, of these islands. Uh, Lahaina is, is the old royal capital of these islands, and we, we are and should be reminded of, of the, the good graces of, of culturally what that, that town means, the Hawaiian community. So having said that, it's obvious what side of the fence I'm, I'm dropping down on. Anything that happens in the future has to be a holistic uh, consulting with the history of these islands, with the history of the people who uh, must remain uh, with the faculty of having a real voice. And anything other than that uh, would, again, would be abhorrent to me if, if it was just turned into some playground. I do not believe that will be allowed. Uh, and certainly I would wave more than a flag or two if it was heading that way. I moved here many, many years ago. I consider myself part of these islands, but I am a visitor. And culturally, I, having traveled my whole life, that's really what this is. The essence and the real uh, backbone of these islands are, are people who have lived here for, for a long, long, long time. And one has to be uh, gracious and, and have huge deference to a, a factor of history. And I think, in truth, many people who, who come from uh, the Hawaiian culture, understandably and thankfully, uh, in truth, are being re-reminded of how important their lovely islands are. Uh, so in any context, it, it's about honoring and having dignity uh, end up coming out of this disaster. Omar Jimenez joins us. I'm so glad you had that conversation. He obviously cares deeply about the island and the people and what, what's happening. And, and, you know, the thing, and I know you all mentioned before going to it, but, you know, this isn't his second home. This isn't some vacation home. This is where he lives. It's where yeah. he's lived for decades. And so, of course, while he is this famous musician at, at the core of it, he's also a resident going through a lot of this as well. And I should also mention uh, that part of what we talked about, his foundation, the Mick Fleetwood Foundation, they've been trying to connect people with with charities that are on the ground there, the Maui Food Bank, Hawaii Community Foundation, the Maui Humane Society, because he wants to be part of the rebuilding process. And another thing we talked about is, you know, I've covered a lot of disasters like this. Obviously, I'm not yes. in Maui here, but one of the things, one of the elements you see, whether it's a hurricane or a wildfire, is it can be easy to start the rebuilding process. It's difficult to replace. And that's what I think we're going to see here. There's so much history 
especially a town like Lahaina. Yeah, 100%. You see how much history and tradition was steeped there. And we talked about, Mick and I talked about it a little bit towards the end there, but it was more about, you know, there are concerns from the governor about how this land will be rebuilt and yep. trying to make sure that outside developers don't come in and do it in a way that, that upsets yeah. that history. And Mick wants to be part of the movement to make sure that it's rebuilt the right way in a way that pays proper deference to the history. And so that while you might not be able to replace everything that was lost, you can at least get pretty close to rebuilding it. Um, and then the last point is that the rebuilding process, of course, is something that's in the future. There are a lot of needs right now for people that you, you can't even get to the point of rebuilding because you've got over a thousand people missing. missing. The death toll continues to climb. There are so many needs where the basic ones he talked about, but of course, food, shelter, clothing on people's backs. And, uh, you know, it's a disaster that is still ongoing despite the flames getting yeah. more and more under control. Omar, thank you yeah, for that thanks. interview. Great interview. Thanks, Marcy. Thanks. First on CNN, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has spoken on the phone Paul Whelan, the American who is in prison still in Russia, what he told him next. First on CNN, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has spoken on the phone to American Paul Whelan, who has been detained in Russia for more than four years. A source tells CNN it was a, quote, long and frank phone call with Blinken, giving Whelan words of encouragement, keeping, telling him to keep the faith as well as they continue to work to bring him home. His brother, David, we should note, also spoke to CNN and says they view this, the family views this as a very positive step. I think that uh, Secretary Blinken has obviously sent a message, and uh, that message uh, is for Paul and for our family, that uh, the U.S. government is continuing to advocate for Paul and his release. Uh, and I think it's also a message for the Kremlin uh, that uh, that the U.S. government hasn't let up, and in fact, uh, their lead foreign policy person uh, is is willing to call a prisoner, which is, I think, astounding. U.S. officials say Russia has not responded yet in a substantive way to the proposals raised so far to bring Whalen home. We'll keep you posted on this. Well, the culture war fights, they have landed in the library. A Wyoming public library board recently fired its head librarian after she refused to remove certain books. The board alleges the books were sexually inappropriate for minors. The librarian, Terry Leslie, wouldn't budge, in part because she believes, quote, the community is harmed by not having access to a wide variety of information. That's what she told the Huffington Post. It all came to a head at a special board meeting where she was fired. I make a motion to um, vote for Terry Leslie's position to be terminated as the Campbell County Public Library Director. All in favor? Wow. wow. There you have it. It's worth noting many in the community disapproved of the decision, including this man who spoke to the board before that vote you just watched. When you start outlawing books because of your personal <coughs> religious and moral beliefs, in this country, you're, you're going against the Constitution. You're going against what we were founded for. This is a show, and I'm embarrassed for this board. Thank you. Yeah. Now, CNN has reached out to the board for comment. We haven't heard back, but a board member said earlier this summer, quote, this is about making the library more responsible for protecting children from sexually explicit material until they are mentally de or, and developmentally mature enough to understand the ramifications and consequences of sex and different lifestyles. Joining us is the librarian at the center of all this, Terry Leslie, now the former director of the Campbell County Public Library System. Uh, thanks so much 
for joining us. The one thing I wanted to ask you at the start, can you walk us through how it got to this point? Because this wasn't just the snap of a fingers. This was a process, I think, that, that evolved over time, right? Right. Um, it all began in uh, June of 21. Um, I was surprised um, to uh, to have this happen. It started because we had a Facebook post uh, promoting some LGBTQ books. A commissioner commented, a county commissioner commented on that post. And um, the next thing I know, the next county commissioner's meeting, I get called into the meeting uh, and I was told that there was a room full of people there to complain about the library. I had no idea it was coming. So I show up to the commissioners and, and uh, people in the audience are complaining about the books. And I get an opportunity to explain how our book challenge process works. And, um, and so I encouraged the audience, if they had problems, to use that process with the library. Um, Following that, um, that same day, I, I got a, a call from a county commissioner concerned about uh, a children's summer reading program that featured a magician. Um, the complaint was that this magician was transgender. And um, in looking into it, uh, uh, we had no idea, but had no problem with that and, and planned to continue with the program. But the community, the same um, anti-library crowd that had been at the county commissioner's meeting started really um, protesting and um, the magician had received some threats. She decided to cancel the program for her safety and the safety of the children. Um, and in spite of that, the same group uh, chose to pick it in front of the library that day. Uh, picket signs don't trans our kids or your library okays, LGBTQ. Um, so that's how it all started. It, it was with that kind of, of uh, drama at the library. We were all taken off guard by it. Um, later into the, um, a few months later into the year, we started getting book challenges. And I, I did have a couple of these activists um, go to the sheriff's office to press charges against me for having um, obscene materials that would harm children. And um, so uh, a special prosecutor was brought in to review uh, the complaint and it was found by this prosecutor that it was not prosecutable, so no charges were brought against me. Um, Can I ask for people who are trying to contextualize what's happening because it seems like a pretty mass escalation over a short period of time related to a library and books. Um, the concerns about sexually explicit content and its availability to minors or to, to younger people, what kind of books were these? Why is there any merit to those concerns? Um, there is nothing in the library that could be classified as pornography in any way, shape, or form. We do have um, some sex education books and um, biology books, things like that, and um, that are, you know, are important for um, 
for youth to have access to in case they have questions. Um, there were some LGBTQ themes in these books, and I, and I felt like the LGBTQ part of that was, was a big part of what the complaints from the public were about. Did they, um, you know, when I take my kids to the library here in New York, the lower floor is the kids section and higher up are adults. Were they asking you to fully remove these books? Because, you know, some of the board members argued they wanted to protect children from all sexual material. Did they want the books just out of the whole library or was this about moving them? Um, I think it was more about moving them, at least as far as the board was concerned. The community members would have liked to have them removed all the way around. Um, and so the thought was just move these books uh, up, you know, up into our adult collection. Um, and, you know, so the audience that these books were intended for uh, were teens. Right. And They'd so have questions, as you said, right? They'd have questions. Right. That have questions that that are seeking information that would be helpful to them, and um, if they don't find the books on the shelf while they're browsing, they may not realize that they're there, mm -hmm. and they may not be able to get to that information that they need. Terry Leslie, we're out of time. Please keep us posted on how this proceeds. We do appreciate you joining us. All right, thank you. So. This is really interesting ahead. The data shows Americans are pretty comfortable talking about the weather with a stranger. That's actually what you do, right? But what about if you try to talk about the climate crisis? Harry Enton has some fascinating numbers ahead. Well, we're watching potential extreme weather from coast to coast. Right now, a tropical storm is taking aim at the Southern California coast. Plus, forecasters are warning a dangerous heat wave is set to redevelop this week after the planet experienced its hottest July on record. And on the East Coast, Fox folks are still brace bracing for the peak of hurricane season. So how interested are Americans in all of this? Well, CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton is here always with all the answers. Um, what's the morning number, Harry? All right, this morning's number is 300%. Google searches for weather are up 300% over the last 20 years up 75% since 2013. I looked at some other keywords. None of them, when it relates to news, is up anywhere near as much as weather huh. is up. So a lot of interest in weather. And it's something we're really comfortable talking about with someone you don't know. Look at this. 74% of Americans say they're very comfortable talking about the weather with someone they don't know. Compare that to something like Donald Trump at 25%. Weather is the way to go if you don't know somebody. What about climate change? Yeah, so this is the reverse of it, right? Okay, so talk about climate change with friends. Look at this, just 8%, this is with friends, not with strangers, just 8%, friends. Just, just friends, just 8% talk about climate change often with friends. Look at this, 50% say they rarely or never talk about climate change with friends. What a difference with but the weather. But is that even now after this summer? This is from earlier this year. This is from- This is before the crazy weather this, this summer. This is before the crazy, crazy thing. Crazy climate this summer. Exactly. Has a conversation about climate change ever changed your mind? Look at this. Just 19% say, yes, it has. So I'm not sure even if you had those conversations, it really would make much of a difference. Oh. That's so interesting. Yeah. He, he always, he always is. I'd like I like to think I'm always This was extra interesting. Thank Thanks, you. Harry. Appreciate it. Crying is expected at an Adele concert. Phil can tell you about it, well, that, wait, but what? usually not from Adele herself. Now, it wasn't the music that brought her to tears. Instead, it was a request from a couple sitting in the audience. Watch this. 
Did you see? Uh, I couldn't see. Uh, Corey! Oh, <laughs> signs are not allowed at the venue at Adele's residency in Las Vegas. So the couple snuck in a custom-made flag asking the 16-time Grammy Award winner to do their gender reveal. And she did. And it was so beautiful as everything it's Adele pure. does. So I didn't do a gender reveal. I, for any, any of your of my children. eight children. There's a lot of them. <laughs> There's four. We'll see you tomorrow. I CNN News Central starts right after this. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.